As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, a big thank you to Lisa Stevens and Vicky who've supported me on Patreon this week. I really appreciate your help. Today we go back to the summer of 1996. So let's start off by taking a look at the music at the time. Top of the US charts was That Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Now, anyone in the UK who watches Love Island, come on, we'll be interested in this. Well, I use the term very loosely. To know that a cover of this song was Blazing Squad's first UK number one. Although, interestingly, it's only reached 82 in the German chart. Okay, I'm boring myself now. So before we head to the UK charts, let's take a look at the news of the time. Independence Day, starring Will Smith, Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum, premiered as did Nutty Professor, starring Eddie Murphy, and John Grisham's The Runaway Jury was one of the top-selling books. Is there anyone who hasn't once read a John Grisham book on holiday? Irish journalist Veronica Gurin was shot in her car while in traffic on the outskirts of Dublin, and the Nintendo 64 was launched in Japan. In sport, at the French Open tennis, Steffi Graf beat Arantxa Sanchez Vicario in the longest ever ladies' final in Paris, but there was no German whitewash of the major titles as Michael Stich lost to Yevgeny Kafelnikov in the men's final. The UK was football crazy as we hosted a major tournament, the European Football Championships, Euro 96, which if you don't know is held every four years. The UK charts were topped by the Fugees with Killing Me Softly. The song of the summer was still at number four. Three Lines by Frank Skinner, David Bedil and the Lightning Seeds. Even non-football supporters were caught up in Euro 96 fever, as Terry Venables' squad seemed to at last have a real chance of winning England's first major football tournament since 1966. As the sun rose on Saturday the 15th of June, the whole nation was eagerly anticipating that afternoon's match between the oldest rivals in sport, England and Scotland at Wembley. In the northwest of England, in Manchester, The city was bustling with activity as people tried to get their shopping finished before three o'clock. Many were buying presents for the upcoming Father's Day. And literally thousands of football supporters flooded into Manchester to make a day of it before the big game started. There were also a large number of Russian and German supporters in the city and their associated media ahead of their clash the next day at Manchester United's Old Trafford Stadium. Unbeknown to all these people, intent of having a day of fun and banter in the sunshine, 
At about 9.40am, a man with an Irish accent called Granada TV, Sky News, Salford University, North Manchester General Hospital and the Garda Police in Dublin. Using a code word known to Special Branch, he told them that in one hour, a bomb would go off in Manchester City Centre, near the Arndell Shopping Centre. As the provisional IRA had just ended their ceasefire by exploding a massive bomb in London's Canary Wharf, which killed two people, this threat was taken incredibly seriously, and the evacuation of 80,000 people from the centre of Manchester began. This was a huge operation, but was just about finished as the massive bomb blast rocked the city at 11.16am. The bomb was huge. 3,300 pounds of homemade explosives which was over three times bigger than the recent London bomb. The events that followed were chronicled in the Manchester Evening News as follows. When the bomb exploded, the blast could be heard from 15 miles away. It issued a force so powerful it travelled around 90 degree corners, knocking people to the ground and blowing out virtually every window within half a mile, leaving a 15 metre crater around it. Glass rained from the sky, a fine dust followed by shards and eventually a torrent of rubble and debris. From his vantage point on Cross Street, Chief Inspector Ian Seabridge later recalled that there was then a sudden air of stillness. Then every alarm in the city centre started to wail. Five fire engines and 30 firefighters raced to the city centre from across the region. For over an hour afterwards, 999 crews toured the city centre to pick up victims. At Manchester Royal Infirmary, they were treating 70 casualties within minutes. For hours afterwards, dazed and confused people staggered out of the city centre to find transport. People as far away as Kendall's department store, if you remember that, it's now the House of Fraser, had been injured as the windows blew out, people having wrongly believed that they'll be safe under the store's canopy. More than 200 people were hurt in the blast, Yet one fact from that day remains breathtaking, and it's a testament to the heroic policing operation. Nobody had been killed. If you want to hear more about the IRA, take a listen to episode 15 of this podcast, A Man in a Belfast Bar, and episode 24, 14 Days of Terror. The Manchester bombers walked away after leaving the bomb in a van earlier that morning. They rang an IRA chief in Ireland to let them know that the job was done and the pair then escaped in a burgundy Ford Granada. Nice wheels. Which was later found abandoned in Preston, which is a small city around 35 miles northwest of Manchester, towards Blackpool. And it's in Preston that our story really begins, as this was the home of 20-year-old student Janet Murgatroyd. Janet had been planning to watch the big match in the centre of Manchester after doing some shopping with her university friend Fiona Watson. But after the bomb in Manchester, they decided to stay locally in Preston instead. It was an incredibly exciting time for Janet and Fiona, who were planning to spend the summer travelling around Europe. Their adventure was going to start on the Greek island of Rhodes. Now, if you've been there, you'll know that a party is never too far away in Rhodes. And then for Janet's 21st, they aimed to be celebrating in Italy. Do you remember those days when everything seemed possible? And your main responsibility in life was just to have fun. Or maybe this is you now, planning your next big adventure with no idea where you will be or what you'll be doing 12 months from now. This is the enviable place that they were in at the time. 
Janet had enjoyed a very happy childhood. Despite her parents separating when she was small, both lavished love on their only child, and Janet lived with her mum, with whom she was very close. Intelligent, attractive and sociable, Janet had spent her younger years playing with friends on the streets in the tight community near her home. And now she was older, she was out partying with these people, along with her new friends. Hard-working, Janet was a popular pupil at All Hallows High School, where she was keen on sports and captain the school hockey team. Following school, Janet went to college in Preston, where as well as being a popular student, she excelled academically, achieving excellent grades. And she was also elected as a student rep, liaising with the college staff. Ambitious for a career as a solicitor, Janet was now studying law at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston. And alongside this, she was gaining excellent work experience in her part-time job in the Crime Input Bureau at Lancashire's Police HQ. Like everyone else in the country, the two women were so shocked by the events in Manchester that morning. They even stopped in a nearby church in Preston to light a candle for the people who'd been injured. After this, it was time for the football. In Preston, like across the rest of the country, it was party time as England beat Scotland 2-0, ensuring their progression to the next stage of the competition. Fiona and Janet watched the game in the blazing sunshine and they visited a number of bars across the city before ending up in a pub called the Adelphi. When there, the two met a couple of guys and got chatting. It was getting late, and Fiona could see that Janet was kissing the fellow student she had met, Brendan Connolly. Fiona left the pub, and as she walked towards the taxi rank, she glanced back, but by now she could not see her friend. And she would never again see Janet alive. The next day... Sunday the 17th of June was another brilliant summer's day. It was around noon when a water ski driver on the River Ribble near Penwortham Bridge saw an object in the water. Moving closer, he saw to his horror it was in fact the body of a young woman who was soon identified by her mother as Janet Murgatroyd. Tragically, the man who discovered Janet's body was later to commit suicide. As you probably know, this isn't uncommon and it says so much for the training and support networks of our police officers and our other emergency services that most are able to see such horrendous sights and come through relatively unscathed. The pathologist examining the body found that Janet had suffered serious injuries before drowning, including a broken nose and jaw, probably from punches. Janet was kicked at least three times to the head and had scratch marks on the back of her legs which were consistent with being dragged through the undergrowth naked. Finger-shaped bruising marks to her face indicate that the killer had clasped his hand over her mouth to stop her screaming. Distressingly, it appears that Janet was unconscious but still alive when her body was thrown into the River Ribble, and it appears she was actually washed up on a sandbank. It was low tide when she entered the river, and it was as the tidal waters rose that she was pulled into the river when she drowned, and this could have been four hours after the attack. Janet's injuries were also consistent with a serious sexual assault. After the body was discovered, police launched a murder inquiry involving over 50 police officers. Their first job was to understand exactly what had happened to Janet after Fiona Watson left the Adelphi pub. Brendan Connell told police that Janet was very tipsy and after some kissing and cuddling at the back of the nearby Blackball pub, he had a pang of conscience about his girlfriend. 
He also told police they'd now realised that Janet was pretty drunk and he did not want to take advantage of her any further. He said that he walked with her to a nearby taxi rank where he met some friends of his. Brendan assumed that Janet was going to get into a taxi and go home while he went off with friends. He said goodbye, quickly kissed Janet and left her on the busy taxi rank, confident that she'd be picked up in a few minutes. After Brendan left, the picture's a bit more confusing. Janet was seen asleep near Preston's railway station and she also bumped into a couple of old school friends but she didn't stay with them. The next definite sighting was by John Livesey who was in central Preston that night driving his mum home shortly after 1am. Although they didn't know Janet, his mother was seriously concerned about a girl walking home on her own so late at night and she urged her son to give her a lift. John Livesey said that Janet looked straight at the vehicle and started to wave her arms, attempting to flag him down. John could instantly see that she was very drunk and he had to stop the car to avoid her. But because of her obviously drunken state and fearing that she'd be sick in his car, John decided not to give Janet a lift and instead headed back to his mum's house. And then just after this sighting, a taxi driver saw Janet being chased by a man across the bridge. It was around the same time that another witness saw a young couple having a heated argument in the gardens by the bridge and police believe this was Janet and her killer. Minutes later, two brothers were walking along the bridge when they heard a woman moaning and groaning nearby and again the police believe this woman was Janet. The brothers saw a man wearing a light-coloured baggy shirt clamber unsteadily down the riverbank but they thought little of it as they headed home. Police believe this was Janet's killer disposing of her body. As we have heard from the witnesses who have come forward, there were certainly opportunities to both ensure a tipsy Janet got home safely and also to stop the attack once it had started. These people have to live with their actions every day of their lives, but I wonder how you or I would have behaved in similar circumstances. As the police investigation began, some have questioned just how thorough was the police search of the murder scene. For example, local photographer Darren Andrews, who had covered the Manchester bombing the previous day, was sent to the scene by his paper. He recalls, When I got to the Ribble, there were not many people around, but there were still a few police officers there. One said they had checked the area, so I stepped through the undergrowth and found a piece of clothing with bloodstains on it. It was quite away from where the body was found and I called the police over. They took it away. Children playing at the spot the next day noticed a pile of blood-stained clothes, but when police went to collect the garments, a pair of jeans had gone missing. For months, police kept up their hunt for Janet's size 10 Wrangler jeans that were never recovered. Was this just sloppiness by the police? And how significant would this prove as the investigation progressed? A major police investigation, led by Detective Inspector Gooch, continued with more than 1,500 people interviewed and over 2,100 names were stored on police computers. There was constant publicity about the case locally and detectives were almost certain that the motivation for the attack was sexual. The police had quickly identified a prime suspect who they arrested, Janet's ex-boyfriend, John Parkinson. The two had enjoyed, if that's the right word, a very stormy relationship before splitting the Christmas before Janet's death. Fiona Watson, the friend who was with Janet on the night of her death, 
said that Parkinson struggled to accept the breakup, saying, Janet was upset about the breakup. John Parkinson was angry about it. She recalled how early in 1996, in Legends Nightclub in Preston, she saw Janet and Parkinson having words before, as Fiona recalls, he left the club, returned, spat in her face and walked off. Others told of similar behaviour from Parkinson. A friend of Janet's was researching domestic violence for a university project and she played police a chilling tape that Janet had recorded about her abuse at the hands of Parkinson. Janet told her friend that Parkinson, who was known as Pitbull, began being violent towards her just six weeks after they started dating. Janet told how she was genuinely frightened of him after he knocked her teeth caps out on one occasion. She spoke about another instance at the Legends nightclub again, when she was dancing and Parkinson came up to her and dragged her away by the hair before he left. She stayed in the club, but when she left, Parkinson was waiting for her outside and jumped out from a hedge and pushed her into bushes, adding, He whacked me across the face. I was on the floor, decked out. This horrific tape tells how he kept urging her to stand up, and when she did, he then knocked her over again. She told her friend that during the assault, Parkinson took running jumps to kick me, but despite the ferocious attack, she went back with him to the place where they lived, and the next morning she woke up full of bruises. Shocking, isn't it? And it gets worse. Janet's mum told police of a death threat he'd made to her daughter, when he phoned her to say, simply, you are dead. This was because he was angry about a recent drink driving conviction and he blamed Janet's family. Janet's mum also believed that he'd entered the house that she shared with Janet and Janet told her the pit bull has been in. She believed he'd broken into their home and stolen items of Janet's clothing, including underwear from a washing line outside their house. On the night of Janet's murder, Parkinson was also out in Preston City Centre. The last sighting of Janet was around 1am and Parkinson made a call to her home at 1.41am from a phone box in the centre of Preston. This meant that a violent man who'd made death threats to Janet was within walking distance of the crime scene at the time of the murder. All the evidence pointed to him being their man, but in fact, he had a cast iron alibi from his girlfriend and so was eliminated from police inquiries. After Parkinson was ruled out of the inquiry, the inquiry stalled. The lack of forensics, no CCTV and no witnesses clearly able to identify the man spotted with Janet meant that the police were struggling to find the breakthrough needed. The case was featured on national TV via Crime Watch back in the days before they messed around with the format and had huge viewing figures, but with no success. That was until three years later, when out of the blue... 26-year-old Andrew Greenwood stepped into a taxi in Preston and told the driver, I'd done something bad, I'm going away for a long time. He then stopped two passing police officers, telling them that he'd murdered Janet Murgatroyd. He was taken into custody and interviewed, where he gave police a full account of what had happened. He told how he'd watched the England-Scotland match in a Preston pub with a friend, before going to his dad's home and then to a different pub with another friend until about half eleven. During the night, he'd felt agitated due to his contact lenses irritating him and he believed the friends he was playing pool with were laughing at him. After leaving the pub, he'd spotted Janet at the bridge 
and made an attempt to speak to her, but she'd run away. He said, She was drunk. I thought I'd chat her up. I tried to kiss her, but she kept backing away. I thought she'd be easy because she was drunk. Janet became hysterical and began screaming. Sir Greenwood said he dragged her into the bushes near the River Ribble before beating her with his fists and kicking her. During the interview, Greenwood was told by police that it was vital he only spoke about things on the night he could remember and not what he'd seen on Crime Watch or read in the papers. Greenwood was very clear that he was telling them the truth and he went into significant detail. He said that after he'd totally lost it, beating and kicking Janet, to avoid being caught, he took her clothes off and hurled her body into the river, almost falling in himself. He said, I was panicking, it was like a rush. I stood there and saw her body float downstream. It got caught up on the bank and then continued. This was a key point for detectives. Surely only the killer could have known the detail about how the body was disposed, including being caught on a sandbank. Greenwood said that the next morning he woke up and thought it had just been a nightmare. But then he started reading reports about Janet's murder and appeals for information. He said at the time he'd issues at work and he wanted to put his own worries into perspective by concentrating on Janet's case. The coverage of Janet's murder locally was huge and he became obsessed about reading every single details of the case. Luckily, nobody we know would ever be like this over a true crime case, would they? He told police how when friends spoke about the killing, he would try to change the subject, and after watching the case being featured on Crime Watch, he felt half relieved that they'd not got anything on me, and half feeling that I should give myself up. This posed a real issue for detectives investigating the case. Greenwood had not been on their radar at all, but he did seem to know information that only the murderer would know. Inspector Gooch, who was still leading the case, said that officers were very keen to establish whether he was telling the truth or just a fantasist. He said, It had to be dealt with very clearly to see if he'd just made up the stuff or if it was things, as he later said, that he got from the press. But when his home was searched, he'd no collection of newspaper cuttings, no video of news, the Crime Watch programme, or anything like that. So it'd be extraordinary if he could remember from three years before the details that he heard at the time. It was while Greenwood was on remand in prison that issues started to arise. In his letters to his family, he spoke of the remorse he felt for having two deaths on his conscience, Janet and the man who found her body. But this quickly progressed to the stage where he was unsure whether his confession was correct and whether he did in fact kill Janet. In one letter home, he said, Everything is starting to get blurred. Maybe it's still self-denial. I cannot get the story straight at the moment. His confession was the only evidence in the police case, so when he later changed his mind and insisted he was not guilty of the murder, the Crown Prosecution Service, citing lack of evidence, decided not to prosecute in December 1999. As we have heard in other cases in this podcast, especially episode 8 of Valentine's Day Murder, for a variety of reasons, once the police believe they have the right person for the crime, it often seems they are determined to press on to try to make the conviction stick, despite it being questionable whether they are taking an objective view of the evidence. So it seems it was in this case, and in October 2000, Greenwood was charged with murder. 
In 2002 at Liverpool Crown Court, Greenwood denied the charge. The jury were told that murder squad detectives interviewed a total of 17 suspects in the hunt for Janet's killer, but that Greenwood was the only person to have been charged. The jury heard that DNA tests on Janet's body had been made more difficult because of the time she'd been in the water. There was some forensic evidence from hairs found on the top and also the socks she wore on the night she was killed. But after DNA analysis, it was highly unlikely they were from Greenwood or the first suspect in this case. John Parkinson. When Greenwood was called to give evidence, he told the jury he'd begun suffering from depression when he was 18 and he used to drink heavily, often experiencing blackouts and being unable to remember the night before. And this is exactly what happened on the night of Janet's murder, with the next thing he remembered was waking up in his house. He said that as he learnt about the case, his fascination grew, adding, by about one or two months after the murder, I'd convinced myself I was the killer. I wanted to be punished. But the more it went on of no one being arrested, the more I believed I was guilty. But it was when he had a new solicitor, whilst on remand, that the doubts really started to grow. He realised his clothes had not been dishevelled or dirtied. And he believed that the simple reason he'd identified the night of Janet's murder was because of his alcohol-induced blackout. He added, I started to see why I was punishing myself. I saw I made a mistake. He stated that though he clearly lied during interviews with the police, he'd at the time believed in the story and he really wanted to convince detectives that he was the killer. The jury failed to deliver a verdict and the case went to a retrial the following summer. This time the jury did reach a conclusion, taking 15 hours to unanimously find Greenwood guilty of Janet Murgatroyd's manslaughter. Although Janet's family were relieved to have some closure, if disappointed, that the sentence was just eight years. Unease about his conviction remained. This proved well-founded, as just 11 months later, the Court of Appeal in London ruled that the conviction was unsafe and Greenwood was again a free man. The main reason for this was that Greenwood's trial judge prevented evidence about Janet's ex-boyfriend, the first suspect to be arrested. Remember the charming John Parkinson? These admissions included that Parkinson had been married to another woman who divorced him, making allegations of violence and rape against him. It was also revealed that Janet's blood was found on a pair of his boxer shorts recovered from his home, and that knickers found at Parkinson's home revealed, I quote, a diffuse area of blood staining in the crotch, with a DNA comparison matching a sample taken from Janet. Lord Justice Wallace said, As regards the knickers, it may well be that the admissions about them would have given the jury a misleading impression and that was very much a matter for the Crown. But one can see just the possibility that if the defence was not prepared to act in a way which avoided the jury being given a misleading impression, the circumstances might have arisen where the jury would have to make some ruling. But the important point is that it cannot have been right to take away from the jury's consideration all aspects of Parkinson including that he'd been the victim's boyfriend, he'd acted violently to her in the past, and indeed was in the vicinity on the evening of her murder. He concluded, It seems to us impossible to hold that this conviction was safe. Lancashire Police made the following comment after the hearing. We are aware of the court's decision today to release Andrew Greenwood. We will not be looking for anyone else in connection with Janet's murder, and we will not be pursuing any more evidence against Andrew Greenwood. 
Locally, this stance was criticised by many, who felt the police were being stubborn in their attitude to Greenwood. It's clear they felt that he was their man, they were just unable to prove it. Greenwood himself commented, I just want to get on with my life. I've spent a long time in custody for something I didn't do. It was a travesty of justice, and evidence was withheld in the second trial when I was convicted. I'm just relieved the appeal court judges saw this. It's been a difficult time for me and my family and I want to move on. Despite police apparently being certain that Greenwood was their man, another potential suspect came into the frame after Greenwood's confession. Barman Raymond Hayes. Four years after Janet's murder, police hunting for Janet's killer released a CCTV video taken on the night she died. One person watching this footage was the girlfriend of Hayes, who reported him to the police and he was arrested. His actions on the night she died are at best, well, I'll let you judge for yourself. It transpired that Hayes was one of the last people to see Janet alive. The exact details of what happened are unclear, but what is for certain is that when Janet needed help the most, Hayes actually stole her purse and jewellery. He told police that when he saw her she was collapsed at the taxi rank outside Preston Railway Station, but the location of where they met is disputed by others. It's strongly suspected that he approached Janet from behind and pickpocketed her to steal her belongings. Is this why she was so distressed just before her death and was seen running across the road? Hayes denied killing Janet, saying that all he was interested in was money. At the time, Hayes had a very expensive heroin habit. At the time, Hayes had an expensive heroin habit, and he argued that this was the only reason for the theft. When he saw reports of Janet's murder, Hayes panicked and threw away the contents of Janet's purse. He did, however, keep the silver locket and gave it to his then-girlfriend's mother. A nice touch, I'm sure you'll agree. On the night of the murder, he used the money from Janet's purse to buy a Kentucky Fried Chicken takeaway for himself and his flatmates. I'm sure that, like me, you've heard some interesting alibis in your time hearing about true crime, but this is a corker. Detectives working on the case ruled him out of the murder inquiry as witnesses confirmed that the food was still warm when he arrived home with it. Yep, you heard correctly. The takeaway was still warm, according to his flatmates. Hayes was, however, jailed for six months for theft. When he was released, his spiral into drug addiction got worse and he continued to commit crime to fund his addiction and he spent the majority of his time in jail. The most recent string of offences was again targeting vulnerable victims from behind who'd recently been to the post office to collect cash or collect their pension. The oldest victim, 73 years old. Even one of the local papers tagged him, the coward of the county. And this is the situation today, with nobody having been brought to justice for the violent murder of Janet Murgatroyd. But there are at least three suspects, all with question marks, hanging over them. On June the 16th this year, 21 years to the day after Janet was murdered, there was a renewed appeal to find her killer. I'm appealing for help from members of the public, but also from the person responsible for Janet's murder, said DCI Gary Brooks. You've lived with this for 21 years and it may have preyed on your conscience. It may be something that you want to disclose and come forward to the police and admit what you have done. So we are here at Preston Police Station to hear from you 
and any members of the public who can help us find out who is responsible. 20 years on, we remain committed to finding her killer. This was an opportunist offence by a very dangerous man who, despite the passage of time, still needs to be brought to justice. Information has come to light, but sadly not sufficient information to bring anyone to charge or put them before the courts. I would therefore like to use the 21st anniversary of Janet's death to appeal to anyone with information which may assist us to please come forward. The person responsible for Janet's death would have had this horrific act on their conscience more than two decades. There has to be a possibility the offender confided in someone or someone suspected they may be responsible due to a change in behaviour around this time. Even if you think the information is insignificant, please come forward so we can investigate. As we've heard today, a popular, happy woman with everything to live for had that future brutally taken from her. I wonder what you make of what you've heard. The police seem clear that it was Greenwood who killed Janet, but just don't have the evidence to gain a conviction. Even in the recent statement from DCI Brooks, we hear mention of new information, but not enough to put them before the courts. Is this referring to Greenwood? Of course, I don't have all the inside information, but based on what we have heard, if Greenwood is still the prime suspect, I'm not so sure they are right. Are you? At his successful appeal, Greenwood's legal team argued strongly that they felt Parkinson, the ex-boyfriend, was responsible. And a lot of the evidence does seem to point to him. Greenwood's defence summed up as follows. Parkinson had recently threatened to kill her on the telephone and was within a short walk of the murder scene at the time of the killing. He also lied about his clothing on the night of the attack. And the barrister added that Parkinson only had a partial alibi which depended on the truthfulness of his girlfriend for the night of the killing. He added, The defence could not call and cross-examine this man and his girlfriend to break the alibi, although we'd very much have liked to have done so. Had his alibi been broken, Andrew Greenwood would surely not have been convicted. What is your call on this? We've heard what a nasty, abusive character Parkinson was, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility to imagine that his current girlfriend felt under pressure to provide an alibi, is it? But the police knew this, so I imagine they must have been absolutely satisfied with the alibi to rule him out so completely. I wonder. As I understand it, John Parkinson is now dead, although I can't provide any details relating to this. And what of the charming Raymond Hayes? As I said, this case has had a huge effect on the people in Preston, and there is still lots of discussion locally about the case. It has been suggested by people locally that his alibi of a warm takeaway, which seems incredibly loose to me as it stands, isn't as watertight as it appears, and it could be worth the police re-interviewing those who provided this alibi. Hayes's criminal career and testimony of those who knew him shows he was a violent man, and it's easy to see why so many people felt he did more than just rob Janet. Again, although I can't confirm it, as I understand it, Raymond Hayes is also dead, having recently committed suicide in prison. But maybe it was none of these three. Student Brendan Connell was one of the last people to see her alive. He gave evidence that he left her at the taxi stop. Could he or one of the friends he met there know more about what happened to Janet? And what about the witnesses who saw her after that? 
Could have been someone else either from the local area or just a random attack by someone just passing through who has literally got away with murder for the last 21 years. We can only hope for Janet's friends and family, and most of all for Janet, that the person who killed her will be brought to justice, and soon. I'll give you the number for Crime Stoppers, and urge you to call the number if you have any information about this case. It's 0800 When Janet was buried on the 3rd of September 1996, the church was packed with distraught family and friends. So many people wished to be there that many listened to the service sitting in the streets outside. Huge numbers of bouquets and floral tributes filled the funeral cars and students from Janet's old college sang and read prayers. As we can imagine, the service was a desperately sad affair and when it was over, large numbers of tearful teenagers and adults left the church to watch the funeral procession make its way to the Hill Road South Cemetery for a private family burial. Janet's father, David, wrote heartbreaking regular letters to the local newspaper asking for help in catching her killer after her death. Tragically for him and his family, they are still waiting for this help to arrive. Let's finish today by remembering Janet and pondering just what she could have achieved before her future was so cruelly taken from her. A quote that sums up many I have read comes from Karen Atherton, a former colleague who worked with Janet at the French Bistro in Preston, who said, She was amazing. I've never known anyone with such a strength of character. She wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She made us all laugh. She was vibrant, very much a leader. And she'd a heart of gold. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.